All right. So we are in 1 Samuel. It would probably be helpful if I turn there. And we're going to be in chapter 12, starting with chapter 12. There we go. So when we last left this story, uh, back in chapter 10, uh, we know that um, the, the people had been dissatisfied. They were uh, feeling um, uh, military threats on all sides from their various neighbors, and um, they wanted a king. Uh, Samuel had been their judge and their priest, and it wasn't enough. So they said, so we want a king. And uh, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, I said, be careful what you ask for. Uh, they got a king, they got Saul, and Saul had some victories. Uh, maybe not exactly following the plan that, that would have been ideal, but he had some victories. And he's kind of getting, getting his feet wet, so to speak, uh, with this whole king plan. And um, so now there's even more of a transition beginning in chapter 12 as Samuel is handing off some of the responsibilities that he had as mediator for the people over to um, uh, Saul. Now, the kings of the surrounding nat uh, nations, it was a typical monarchy, right? Whatever the, um, whatever the king said went. What God was trying to install was something different. Um, a, it's a covenantal monarchy. In other words, yeah, you can be the king and things might go well with you as long as you maintain the covenants. And it's, that makes it different. So throughout, and, and especially today, we'll see how Samuel is trying to call the people into this relationship, letting them know, yeah, you get a king, but it's not going to be like you normally think of a king. Um, there is still your relationship uh, with the Lord. And so we're going to see this. So... In chapter 12, verse 1, we'll begin. It says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. This is in keeping with their request, of course. It says, And now, behold, the king walks before you. I am old and gray. Behold, my sons are with you. Now, I'm not sure why he wanted to bring his sons into the story because that actually was his weak link, right? Uh, his sons weren't the greatest. Um, in any event, he's laying it all out, the warts and all. He says, I've walked before you from my youth until this day. We know that's true. And he says, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I oppressed? Or from, whom, from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. So he's like, I have served you. I have nothing to hide. Um, if anybody has anything, 
just bring it because I want to just lay it out, what I've been doing for you. And they respond and they say, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taking anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything by hand. And they said, yes, he is, he is witness. So setting forth his credentials, he then brings, he says, the Lord is witness. And now he's going to talk about the Lord because again, he, he's wanting to remind them of, of who God is and, and you know, his people have not been walking closely with the Lord. You know, over and over, uh, get these idols out of here. Get, get the, uh, you know, out of your own homes. You know, uh, come back to God. So he's going to present um, God's credentials, you might say, um, for them to consider. The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, stand still that I might plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the armies of Hazor, into the land of the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, that's Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and he puts himself in that list, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. So he goes back, and how many times have we seen when God wants to remind them of their relationship, of their covenant, of their responsibilities, where does he always go back to? It was back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. So many times. Because that is where they needed their deliverer, their Moses, right? And as, you know, we have this benefit of, of hindsight as we telescope through the past, all of the New Testament is going to be that Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better king. And so... As, as we see the whole story in that perspective, it really, it really highlights the importance of this story. But over and over, it goes back, here's what I did in Egypt. In fact, if you remember, when Jesus was explaining himself after the crucifixion, when he's walking on the road and he meets up with the guys, they start talking, they sit down, they have some dinner, and what does he do? It says... Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explains everything about himself. Everything about Jesus started, that's a little broad. It really started about Jesus with the creation, of course, and then we get a hint there in Genesis 3, so don't forget those things. But that's where Jesus decided to pick up the story himself was with Moses. You get the idea. So, so Samuel does the same thing, and he says, he has brought us to this point. Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, 
No, but a king shall reign over us. Again, notice the motivation for them wanting the king. It wasn't because, Samuel, we don't think you're leading us to God adequately, so we think a king could do better than that. No. It was, we're kind of scared, and we think we need more of an army sort of a thing like these other nations have. And he calls it out. When you saw that the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. Ouch. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Have we heard this type of presentation before? Yes, again. Moses said it. If you will love God and follow his commandments, then things will go well for you. Who was the next person to give that? Joshua. It wasn't long after, right? They had abandoned Moses' sayings all too quickly. Once again, Joshua says, here's all this. If you will love the Lord your God and follow him and do all the things that he says and follow his commandments, things will go well for you. It kind of seems like this was the Old Testament um, formula. If you will follow the Lord, I'm sorry, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you. So here's the, the deal. This is a not just a flat-out monarchy. It's a covenantal monarchy because the king has to follow you as well. Then it will be well. Verse 15. Here's the other shoe. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. In other words, I'm going to show you something. In case you weren't paying attention, listen up, stand still, he says. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So this is a time of year when rain was not expected. In fact, it was weird. It Unlike those of us where rain is expected and it's freaky to see the sun, uh, for them, it was sunshine for a long time. So this thunderstorm out of nowhere, complete with thunder and lightning and rain, uh, they knew this was a divine thing. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Which was step one, right? Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord. So... He gave him some help here to get on the right track. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So here's some repentance here, right? Here's some repentance. We recognize it was wrong to ask for a king. Verse and Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. 
Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So that is, I mean, that's the crazy mystery, right? The Lord chose this nation for all of its, you know, rebelliousness and waywardness and impatience we'll see later and you know questioning and doubting this is the people that God chose for himself I mean that's the craziness of it right and so because we're grafted into that we can also marvel that we are the people that God chose for himself and we should have that same humility of course serve the Lord with all your heart verse 21 and do not turn aside after empty things verse 23 moreover as for me far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and I will instruct you in the good and right way so Samuel is handing over some of the responsibility for leading the country to Saul, to the king that they asked for. But he's saying, no, I'm not going to stop praying for you. I'm not done here. My work isn't totally done. It's going to be different. But yes, I will continue to pray for you. But another reminder, he says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. He is calling them into this relationship, uh, which is what God has wanted all along. But it's on God's terms. It says, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Could there have been any doubt where things stood after this pronouncement? It's pretty clear, right? Um, I don't think anyone that was there down the road could have said, you know, in retrospect, I don't think I really understood that. You know, maybe, you know, really? Is that, is that really what you meant? It's very clear. So a very important passage because... He's reestablishing the covenant one more time. He's transitioning from, think about all the history that is changing from the Moses, the, the deliverer out of Egypt and the intermediaries, Joshua, and then all of the judges. This is a big deal to hand that part of leading the people over to a king. And in terms of all, the whole breadth of scripture, it's, it's king now and going to be that way for a few hundred years. There's going to be lack of much of a king at one point replaced by longing for a king, right? Remember those 400 years between the Testaments, between Malachi and... and uh, you know, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, um, these people were waiting for a king then. 
Uh, there were lots of false messiahs that had happened then. There was, um, everybody was hopeful. You know, it's been so long since we've heard from God. You know, when's our next, you know, when's God, God going to raise up this other person? And this is why it was so confusing for quite some time, even to the disciples who, you know, were looking for that Old Testament type of a king uh, because that's, that's what they were used to and that's what they were longing for again. All right, so let's see more about this first king. Chapter 13. Well, we're going to start off with craziness here, um, or at least maybe a little confusion. So the um, ESV that I use... Um, reads this way. Saul was ellipsis. That's the dot, 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 right? Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. That's what the Hebrew says of the text that we've got. That's, that's all it says. Now, New American Standard, super translation, probably the most literal of all the translations. This is one time when, when it's not super literal. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. I think the NIV says something like that as well. Um, this is where people are trying to figure it out. Everybody knows when it says, and he reigned and two years over Israel, they can tell from the fragments of the text that they have that something's been dropped. It's something in two. You know, we would say, you know, is it 10 and two or 20 and two? It's something else is supposed to be there. And they can't quite, there's, there's just nothing there. So they say 42 because... We have New Testament where, uh, I forget if it was Paul or Stephen in one of their defenses, and they, they mentioned, I think it was Paul, and uh, they talk about, and Saul reigned 40 years. So if we believe in the accuracy of the New Testament, um, then we can kind of pull that in here and say, well, it must have been 40, because they would use kind of round numbers, right? So Paul was using round numbers when he said 40. So they're saying, well, maybe it's 42, and that's where you get to this. This 30, I'm honestly not sure where they get it, but we know by the time that, you know, he's got a son who is old enough to be leading an army, or at least, you know, portions thereof, Jonathan. Um, so how old would Jonathan have had to be to do that? I mean, I don't know, 16, 18, 20? Well, let's say he was on the young side. Let's say he was 16 or 18. Well, you would think Saul would have had to have been at least that old to get married and have Jonathan. So John, I mean, so Saul would have been maybe mid-30s, maybe. Um, so you see that there's some textual lack of clarity here um, 
so this 30 years old, I think, is just a guess. Uh, the 42 is somewhat of a guess as well. The two everybody <laughs> agrees on. Um, but the, the, whatever goes in the middle um, doesn't. So anyway, this is just one of those, one of those areas where things are a little fuzzy. Um, and, uh, but we've got what we've got, and um, we're going to go with it. All right. Probably the important part of that verse is that it kind of signals in the writing, you know, the historian who was writing this, um, it kind of signals kind of a transition as to, you know, there was, there was this transition period between Samuel and Saul, and this appears to be the time when Saul is kind of on his own, so to speak, as far as uh, leading the, 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 uh, the nation there. All right, verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Now, remember when... Remember, Saul was a Benjamite, right? And he was from the town of Gibeah. Now, the spelling differs, but that's where he was from. And remember, when he was first anointed and Samuel took him aside to explain things, and he told him, do what God's told you to do. And remember, one of the things that God told him to do, I think it's back in chapter 10, was he wanted you to clear out the Philistines. And the text tells us, oh, by the way, there was a garrison of the Philistines in his hometown. We also know that Paul, that rather Saul did not take care of business even in his hometown. What we hear now is Jonathan, his son, finally does the first task that was on Saul's to-do list. Jonathan finally takes care of it defeating the garrison that was in his hometown. And remember, the way this was located, the Philistines are mainly on the coast. Benjamin is the total other side. Like, if we look at a typical map and the coast of Palestine is on the left, Benjamin was way over to the right, over by the Jordan. So they had to come all the way over and set this outpost. The Philistines did. So they were deep within Israeli territory, so much so that they were on the opposite border. That's how far they had advanced. In any event, uh, Jonathan takes care of it, and Saul's glad about it. It says, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison, the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So, it's a big victory there. Saul doesn't want to miss that opportunity to say, hey, look at, look at everybody, look at what we did. And, you know, get in the game. Well, the Philistines, we know, are not one to shy away from a fight. And we see that in verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel... 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like sand on the seashore in multitude. 
They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. And we'll see that, uh, another place as well. So basically they divided into three forces. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So, the Philistines did not take it kindly that their garrison had been defeated. And so they bring the big guns, so to speak. And uh, like the um, uh, you know, timid people that, that they are, the Israelites uh, were scared and they went into hiding in all sorts of little cubby holes. If you think about it, is that really going to help you like when that many people invade you? Are they not going to look you know, for you? I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a wise strategy. But in any event, uh, Saul's going to, uh, he's trying to uh, respond to this uh, overwhelming force that is a- approaching. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. So apparently he and Samuel have had some conversations, and Samuel is going to um, uh, kind of join up and uh, participate in blessing the troops, so to speak. But Saul is looking, it says, but Samuel did not come up to Gilgal in that seven-day time, and the people were scattering from him. So you can see how this is, right? They're there, you know, the people are massed. Saul's there. You know, when is your, the most of your enthusiasm is that day one, right? Everybody's ready. You haven't really thought it through. You're just going with it. But now you've had a week. You've been laying around camp. And what's the conversation around the campfire? I've kind of had enough of this, guys. Samuel's not here. I'm still not sure Saul knows what he's doing. You know, I, you know, I need to get home. Right? Can't you just, I mean, that's human nature, right? I mean, I could have been there too. Uh, so here it is. It's been a week. And Saul sees, it says, and the people were scattering from him. Right? So the Bible's very, I mean, you can just, this makes so much sense. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. Well, so Saul's been around enough, right? He sees what Samuel has done. He's, he, knows, he knows the protocol. He knows that they need to be blessed before they enter in this. And so he's like, well, he's not coming. Let's get it done. So he starts the sacrifice. He says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. You know, where was Verizon? <laughs> and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Now, when a prophet says, what have you done? It probably means whatever it was, wasn't good. And you can kind of get the idea that Saul goes on the defensive right away. And he says, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come when you said you would come, I'm paraphrasing here, and the Philistines had mustered at Mitchmash, I said, 
Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army after they came up from Gilgal to the Gibeah of Benjamin. So, who is Samuel talking about here? He's talking about David. Uh, does this sound harsh to anybody? I mean, it sounds a little harsh. I mean, you could frame it in the sense that Saul was impatient and that that was his sin. He was impatient. But he kind of went through the right motions, right? I mean, he he knew he needed the Lord's blessing. He he offered the sacrifice and asked for God's blessing. He waited seven days. You know, maybe it was he didn't wait till the eighth day, but it was the seventh day. You know, he had waited a while. I mean, you could argue this sounds really harsh when we know David was no, you know, he couldn't be like Samuel, what have I done, what have I taken, what have I stolen, right? David couldn't say that. I mean, we know about Bathsheba, but some of his military stuff wasn't so pristine either. It just seems, you might argue, really pretty harsh. Now, some commentators have gone crazy with this and said basically, well, Saul never had a chance. The deck was stacked against him. Samuel never liked him. He didn't like the fact that he was being usurped by this. Um, God always had planned for David to come along. Um, poor Saul. I mean, I, you know, part of you know you can maybe see that where they would get that, but here's I think the crux of the thing. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So, we know that Saul has kind of had his own agenda all along. And it is a little bit ironic that he gets into trouble for being impatient, right? When it was a year between him taking care of his own business that God had told him to do from the very start. So God had given him a year to get it done, and he didn't. Jonathan had to do it to take care of his own backyard. But yet he's going to be upset with Samuel because he's a few hours late. So if you put it in that light, eh, you know, maybe it's a little bit bigger of a problem. I think the key is God is really 
take into account what a person's intentions are. I mean, David was selfish, lustful, all those sorts of things. But as you read through the Psalms and so forth, when he was aligned with God, he was all about whatever God wanted. Um, he really was after God's own heart. Um, and Saul really couldn't be accused of being that. But it is different, something to, to ponder. We'll wrap this chapter up. Saul numbered the people who were present with him. There were 600 men, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him. Now, there had been a whole lot more to begin with, right? There were like 3,000. Now it's whittled down to 600. Uh, they stayed there. The Philistines encamped. Raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three different companies. They're spreading out and surrounding them. Verse 19. Oh, by the way, we don't have any weapons. That's what this is about. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and so forth. So the point is that they don't have any weapons. The only iron that they have is for farming. And even that has to be sharpened with the permission of the Philistines. So this is interesting. I mean, war has always been about who has the best technology, unless God intervenes. And so here we, we see this, you know, the technology that Philistines maybe learned from the Hittites, I don't know. Um, but they had, they had blacksmiths, they knew about forging. Uh, they, they knew how to make weapons, and the Israelites didn't. And it says in verse 22, So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan had his son, I'm sorry, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them, and the garrison of the Philistines were sent out to the pass of Michmash. This is why it was kind of cool. Remember what the Benjamites were known for? They were known for their slings. That w that's one technology that they had, because I guess leather and rocks, okay, uh, doesn't require a blacksmith, but they were, they were good with that, and that was really their most potent weapon, was, was the slings. That's what the tribe of Benjamin was known for. Um, and there were only a couple of swords. So they were uh, presumably just fighting with slingshots and, you know, farm tools. Um, so it's really uh, impressive that they ever won anything. Um, I guess spears, maybe just wooden spears. Um, anyway. So that's where we're going to leave it. Um, we already know how this is going to turn out. Uh, and we're going to see further evidences where Saul just doesn't quite get it. He doesn't quite get it. The reminder for us, God wants a relationship with his people, and he really is concerned about the motives of the heart. So, questions, comments? Did Saul have the right to uh, offer a sacrifice? Did Saul have the right to offer a sacrifice? Well, I think we can assume no. Um, he wasn't of the priestly line by any means. He wasn't uh, authorized by anyone. So 
it seems no. So he should have waited for Samuel. He should have waited for Samuel. One more reason why. He was not only, yeah, he was not only being impatient, he was also saying it doesn't really matter this hierarchy that God set up for the priestly duties. I, I'm going to do that too. Right, so the, the whole question of should we even be fighting this one yes. um, was left unasked by Saul of God. Good question, or good point, rather. What else? My, my Bible says that Saul was to recognize the word of the prophet Samuel as the word of the Lord. So Samuel had said, wait on me, which is the Lord saying wait. And he mm-hmm. disobeyed. By disobeying that, he disobeyed the Lord. Excellent point. By not waiting, then he was he was uh, not just uh, in affront to Samuel, but also in affront to God. Good point. Awesome. Well, thanks, you guys. Um, we'll uh, we'll pick up here next week um, in chapter fourteen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, through the words of this writer that we can be pulled into this into this period of time so many thousands of years ago and and um, we can see things that are different but we see human nature hasn't changed that much and more importantly your nature hasn't changed at all and we thank you that you are always faithful and always the redeemer and always looking to bring us to yourself we thank you for that and for your son that makes it possible in his name i pray amen thanks everybody